Welcome to PFASology with me, Rachel London. PFASology is a podcast where we interview researchers about per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, better known as PFAS. In the last two decades, there has been increasing attention on these substances from scientists, NGO, and government. Whilst useful, these chemicals have now become widespread contaminants found in most environments and animals on this planet. Many scientists all over the world are working to find solutions to these problems, including a group of early stage researchers, or ESRs, in the project Perforce 3. Those of us on this show are all researching and learning about these compounds. In this show, we're going to talk about PFAS, some of the research going on at the moment, and some of the ESRs working on this problem. Each episode, we're going to look at one of the aspects being investigated and share what we are learning about PFAS. Hello, everyone. In a podcast about PFAS, it was only a matter of time before they came up. Today, we're going to start with one of the more well-known PFAS-related products, Teflon. Made famous by Teflon nonstick pans, I'm hoping everyone listening to this podcast will have heard of Teflon. To make this fluoropolymer, a group of substances known as fluoropolymer processing aids are needed. The factories where these substances are made unfortunately often act as sources of pollution to the surrounding environment and the communities within that environment. So what is the impact upon these communities? Today, we're going to start by going to the Netherlands, to the town of Dordrecht, where in 1962, the chemical company DuPont came to town. For nearly half a century, the local population was exposed to PFOA and then Gen X, substances that are now both classified by the European Union as substances of very high concern. They are hazardous to human health and the environment. The Dutch government is now trying to investigate the possible negative health effects on this community. And to do this, they need to work out how much of these substances they're exposed to and how this exposure happened. Recently, there have been studies calculating the historic emissions to and from soil, surface water, and groundwater. But what about emissions to the atmosphere? Is this Dutch community being exposed to these substances through the air they breathe? To talk to us today about PFAS transport in the atmosphere and possible resulting human exposure, I have with me Joost Dalmein, who is ESR3 based at Stockholm University. In the last episode, Joost was the interviewer and now he is being interviewed. And yeah, Joost, hello, you are actually here. Yeah, hello. Uh, thanks for having me. And it's nice to be on the other side of uh, the medal once in a while. <laughs> yeah, great to see you. And uh, today uh, the interviewer is going to be Johan Bonnet, who is ESR 12 at the Swedish University of Agricultural Science in Uppsala. Welcome. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me too. <laughs> Yeah, and unlike previous episodes, this episode is actually recorded when the whole team is together. We're, we've all come together for two weeks of training in Sweden, and so it's great to have you here. Hello, Joost. Nice to sit together with you today. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm doing fine, actually, and it's also nice to see you uh, actually in person. Yeah, likewise. It's the first time we actually get to see each other. And not only the two of us, but also all of our fellow ESRs within the network. We came together for an intense two weeks of courses here in Stockholm. 
What do you think of it? Do you do you like the courses so far? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's absolutely great. There were fun courses and also quite diverse courses. And um, I also think it's really great to see everybody in person. We kind of missed this after the whole pandemic and the courses we had until now were mostly online. And it's really good to see some actual faces with the pictures, some actual real faces. So this was really nice. Yeah, I completely agree. It's much more personal, much more fruitful discussions. And as you say, after this long COVID break, with all courses being held virtually, we finally see each other. And I think we all were longing for this and it finally happened. Yeah, absolutely great. Yeah, and um, I'm also really looking forward to the meetings we will have in the future, because this will not be the only meeting. We will also go to other places and see each other. And uh, I think this... This can, it can only get better from now on, let's say. Yes, that's right. I think we have a good bunch of people together in this network and I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Today we sit together to record our podcast. Would you quickly like to give an introduction about what we're going to talk today? Yes, yeah, so today we're going to talk about my project. And my project is about emissions of PFAS to the atmosphere. And my project focuses on industry which contributes significantly to these emissions, and that's uh, fluoropolymer manufacturing. And uh, yeah, the manufacturing of polymers like Teflon, for instance. So my first question is, what are fluoropolymers? Fluoropolymers are synthetic polymers which are made up of repeating building blocks called monomers. These repeating monomers are chemically joined together to form polymeric chains in a process called polymerization. Fluoropolymers can be based on one monomer or a mixture of different monomers. And if the latter is the case, we call it a copolymer. These monomers form a carbon-only polymer backbone and uh, the fluorine atoms are attached directly to uh, these carbons. The strong carbon-fluorine bond provides high chemical and thermal stability and the perfluoroalkyl chain also provides uh, water and oil repelling properties. A well-known example of a fluoropolymer is PTFE or polytetrafluoroethylene, which is also known under the brand name Teflon. There are also others, such as fluorinated propylene or FEP, polyvinylidin fluoride or PVDF, and uh, different fluoroelastomers, which are collectively known as FKM. And why are PFAS used in the production of fluoropolymers? Yes, so in some types of fluoropolymer production, PFAS are used in a process called emulsion polymerization. In this process, the polymerization of, for example, tetrafluoroethylene takes place in an emulsion with water comprising the monomers, activation molecules, uh, which initiate the polymerization, and the surface active agent or surfactant. PFAS are commonly used as these surfactants, and the surfactant Commonly is a molecule with a hydrophilic or a charged head group, which in fluoropolymer production usually is the carboxylic group, uh, and the hydrophobic tail, which for PFAS is the perfluoroalkyl chain. And PFAS are especially suited for this emulsion polymerization process because they are uh, very stable and uh, thus able to withstand these harsh physical chemical environments in which the polymerization takes place. Fluorinated surfactants are also more effective as surfactants compared to other common and cheaper surfactants, for instance, based on hydrocarbons. Using these PFAS in fluoropolymer production, a dispersion is created because the monomers themselves usually are not readily soluble in water and very small bubbles or micelles are needed to facilitate the polymerization process. 
These micelles make sure that the polymer does not coagulate, so does not form a big clump, and a polymer powder is obtained after the drying. In your research, you investigate emissions. Why are the PFAS emitted at all? Yeah, so the PFAS are used in fluoropolymer manufacturing as so-called processing aids. They are used as substances which help in the production, but are not supposed to be present in the end product, which is the polymer in this case. So after the polymerization is complete, the aqueous phase, including the PFAS surfactants, but also other residues, has to be removed. And this is done uh, by washing it and drying. And uh, this process creates a liquid and gaseous waste, which can contain polymerization byproducts and residual amounts of the PFAS processing aids. This can lead to PFAS emissions to the environment, for instance, from the wastewater stream of the factory, which goes to a wastewater treatment plant, which uh, does not effectively remove the PFAS, or through the stack or the chimney of the plant. Some fluoropolymer products also contain low residual amounts of the PFAS processing aids, which are left over from this manufacturing. But most of the time, these are removed from the final products. For instance, in those uh, non-stick frying pans, the chances are very low that you can get exposed to PFAS by using these. Previously, you mentioned some fluoropolymer products, but which PFAS are actually used in the production of those fluoropolymers? Yeah, so when the production of fluoropolymers started, and this was in the middle of the 20th century approximately, the main PFAS used as processing aids were perfluoroalkyl carboxylic acids, or PFCAs. And in particular, the ammonium salts of perfluorooctanoic acid, or PFOA, and perfluorononinoic acid, or PFNA, were used. Around the turn of the millennium, it became clear that these substances are problematic. They are persistent, bioaccumulative, and toxic. And the main producers in the USA, the EU, and Japan therefore voluntarily phased out PFOA and PFNA-based processing aids. This started with 3M in 2002. And today the use of PFOA and PFNA as processing aids has been eliminated in most parts of the world, although PFOA is still used in large quantities in China. Hold on, it's still used in China? Isn't PFOA listed in the Stockholm Convention? Yes, it is listed in the Stockholm Convention and China actually signed the Stockholm Convention. But nevertheless, we still observe that um, PFOA is still used there uh, in the production of fluoropolymers. This is an interesting fact. And what did companies come up with in order to replace PFOA and PFNA in right. their production? Right. So after the phase-out of PFOA and PFNA, the producers sought to replace these substances with other PFAS, which were thought not to be as harmful. So a lot of producers went with substitutions of their own. But what a lot of these substitutes have in common is that they are perfluoroether carboxylic acids, or PFECAs. And in these substances, the perfluoroalkyl chain is interrupted by oxygen atoms. But they are still quite like the PFCAs. Examples of these substitutes are hexafluoropropylene dimer acid, or HFPODA, which is otherwise known as GenX, and this is a substance of Camours. Adona from 3M, the substance C6O4 from Solvay, and EEA from Acai Glass. What these substitutes actually achieved is that they eliminated the B in the PBT assessment. So they are not as bioaccumulative in animals and humans. However, these substances remain persistent. And even though they are more rapidly eliminated from the body than PFOA and PFNA, 
they are also more mobile in the environment and also they are toxic. So on the basis of this high PMNT, HFPODA, for instance, was classified as a substance of very high concern in 2019. Now, we've heard about PFAS use in the production of fluoropolymers and that during those processes, some PFAS are emitted to the environment. Are there any specific types of emissions that you investigate? Yes. So my research is primarily focused on the air emissions of PFAS from fluoropolymer production plants. And as we heard earlier, the impact of aqueous emissions of these plants is well known and relatively well studied. However, by, for instance, investigations on deposition patterns, it has been shown that these plants also act as point sources of PFAS to the atmosphere. And I want to get to know what the environmental fate of these emissions is and how they contribute to the air concentrations and distribution of PFAS in the local, regional and global environment. And furthermore, uh, as the processing aids are relatively new and fluoropolymer production could be the source of various other molecules containing uh, carbon fluorine bonds, I am also looking into the fate and analysis of novel and unknown PFAS. Are there any specific point sources that you look at? Yes. So the first project of my research focuses on this fluoropolymer production plant in Dordrecht. At this plant, they have used the processing aid ammonium perfluorooctanoate, or APFO, from 1967 to 2012. And this substance dissociates to PFOA in the environment. And in 2012, uh, APFO was replaced by the Gen X process. And this process uses the ammonium salt of HFPODA, which also dissociates into its parent acid in the environment. And high levels of both substances have actually been found in the environment close to the factory, in both uh, surface and drinking water and in soils. When you investigate those emissions to air, are there any specific methods that you use? Yes, yeah, so uh, simply put, the research consists of the following stages. The first stage is taking the actual air samples in the field close to these uh, plants. Subsequently, we extract the PFAS from these samples in the lab. And then we analyze the different PFAS present and their concentrations using an LCHRMS, uh, which is a liquid chromatograph coupled with a high-resolution mass spectrometer. The air samples are taken using a high-volume air sampler. This is an instrument that is comparable with a big vacuum cleaner. For the campaign in the Netherlands, it was stationed at a meteorological observatory about 25 kilometers downwind of the plant. Air is sucked in with a pump and it's led over a quartz fiber filter, which collects the particles that are present in the air. And we assume that most of the PFAS emitted are also present in this particle phase. The samples are taken over a certain time period, which in my case is usually a day. And using the airflow of the instrument, the total amount of air sampled can be calculated. And from there, a concentration of PFAS in the air also. Uh, multiple samples are collected over a time period and then taken to the lab. Here in the lab, the PFAS are extracted from the filters by putting the filters in tubes and adding a solvent, which in my case is methanol. And then they are worked up to be suitable to be injected in the LCMS system. This system, or the system I use for this analysis, is an Orbitrap, and this is an LCHRMS, or a high-resolution mass spectrometer, which means that I can do both a targeted analysis, so that is calculating the concentrations of known PFAS in the sample, 
with the help of calibration standards and the calibration curve and the suspect screening because the high resolution instrument is able to look at very exact masses so it can look at specific molecules in the data which could potentially be PFAS. We know that PFAS are used in many different products and applications and that there's a number of different pathways for those PFAS being emitted. Do you know what impact fluoropolymer production has on PFAS levels in the atmosphere? So this is actually what I want to contribute in, in finding out. As you said, there are multiple pathways of PFAS to the environment, and also there are multiple pathways of PFAS to the air. For instance, you have the direct emissions, which I investigate, but there are also other pathways, such as the transformation of these volatile precursors. And PFAS could also be suspended from other media in which they are present, such as the soil or water. Air transport of PFAS contributes to their global environmental distribution. So I think investigating these different pathways is important. Is the industry taking any steps to reduce PFAS emissions to the air? With the help of regulatory pressure, there is some recent effort to reduce emissions. The plant in Dordrecht, for example, has now fitted an activated carbon-based scrubbing system on the stack of their plant, so the chimney, basically. They hope to reduce their atmospheric emissions of HFPODA, the processing aid they use, by 99% with this solution. Is it possible to produce fluoropolymers without PFAS? Yes, actually it is. First of all, some grades of fluoropolymers, for instance granular PTFE, have never required the use of PFAS in their manufacture. And second, for those that have required PFAS, for instance the fine powdered PTFE, there are potentially alternative non-fluorinated surfactants that are effective. There are a couple of producers who have developed a method for producing a type of fluoropolymer called polyvinylidene fluoride, or PVDF, without using PFAS processing aids. Also, there are patents even for making fine powder PTFE with alternative non-fluorinated surfactants, but these have not been operationalized to date. And there might be a couple of reasons for this. This alternative process could be too complicated to shift to, or too expensive, or protected by patents. Second, the PTFE it produces could be of a lower grade than that which is produced using the PFAS processing aids. In addition to this, as the global demand and production of fluoropolymers have only increased, the center of gravity of this industry has shifted towards China. And as mentioned, in this region, PFOA is still used to make PTFE, along with various of these novel aids I mentioned. And as the PTFE itself does not contain much PFOA, it can be important, for instance, into the European Union. But the PFOA emitted in China is not contained within the borders of this country and contributes to the global PFAS levels and is probably also transported to remote areas like the Arctic. So you are in the second year of your PhD. How far have you progressed and what's the current status of your research? Yeah, I'm working on a couple of things currently. As I mentioned, I have done a sampling campaign with the high volume air sampler close to the Dordrecht uh, fluoropolymer manufacturing plant. And I'm currently working on analyzing the samples I took in this campaign in the lab for the presence and concentrations of HFPODA or GenX and other PFAS. And furthermore, I'm working on the analysis of air samples taken close to a fluoropolymer manufacturing plant of acai glass in the UK. And lastly, I am working on the analysis of air samples taken in China by a colleague of mine. And here I will try to determine the presence of various novel PFAS, because he already analyzed these samples on the legacy PFAS, such as PFOA.
Besides the typical challenges that us ESRs and PhD students face, are there any specific challenges you face in your project? Yeah, um, there are. So there are, for instance, analytical challenge I face. A lot of these substances are quite novel. This means there are no readily available standards, for instance. So I have to sometimes take contact with producers to make certain substances for me because there are no standards available. And furthermore, another analytical challenge I face is that these perfluoroether carboxylic acids, which I analyze, are very much prone to in-source fragmentation, which is an analytical challenge, which makes it a bit more hard to identify these substances in environmental samples. Furthermore, the sampling itself, uh, air samples are quite complicated to work with. So there are multiple things that could influence this sampling, for instance, the distribution of the substance in the gas phase or the particle phase, the distribution of the different sizes of the particles, but other external influences such as meteorology is also something that's very important. And we are trying to interpret our data also with models, atmospheric dispersion models we are using for this. And we are fortunate enough to have colleagues within our department who specialize in atmospheric science and who can help us out with all of these things. And lastly, of course, it is important to investigate the levels of PFAS, the concentrations and the dispersion, but it might also be good to make some estimation of what the implications for humans and exposure are. To, uh, to PFAS. And this is also something I will be trying to do later on in my PhD. Well, Joost, I don't have any further questions. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you very much uh, for having me on the podcast. It was very interesting to get to know about your research and about your project. And I wish you good luck in the future. Yeah, again, thank you very much for having me. And it was uh, very uh, interesting for me to tell a bit about my day-to-day -day activities. Thank you, Bjorn and Joost, for a great interview. And thank you also for the past two weeks. I have had such a good time here in Stockholm. Uh, I can't wait for the next training course, which will be in Amsterdam in September. I'm very excited for that. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to it as well a lot because uh, I come from Amsterdam and uh, I think Bjorn also has been there. Uh, so uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. Oh, definitely. I'm looking forward to being in this great place with all of you guys together. I'm sure we're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, I can't Looking wait. forward already. <laughs> yeah, can't yeah. wait. Uh, all right. Thanks, guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Listen to our previous episodes on Spotify. Uh, if you enjoyed it, follow us on Spotify, Twitter, ResearchGate, or visit the Perforce3 website at perforce3-itn.eu. Also, if you have any feedback, we would love to hear from you. We've had some great feedback over the past seven episodes. I've had some great conversations with people all over the world about some of the issues that we've talked about on these episodes. So let us know what you think. This is actually the last episode of this season. We're going to take a break for the summer and we're going to continue next academic year in autumn. So I want to take this opportunity to thank you for listening. I hope you have a great summer and I'll see you next autumn. The PFASology podcast was produced and created by the PhDs of Perforce 3. Today's episode was written by Michelle Hubert and Joost Dalmain. 
Our thanks to Professor Ian Cousins and Bjorn Bonnet for reviewing the script. The podcast was edited by the Purple's three researchers, Mohammed, Lakson, Melanie and Odney, and was published and promoted by Faeza, Lara, Lars and Sylvia. This project has received funding from the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Programme under the Marie Skadowska Curie Grant, agreement number 860665. All views expressed solely belong to the authors and do not represent those of our funders. This episode was hosted by me, Rachel London. This has been PFASology. Thank you for listening. Please join us next time.